Welcome to Not Your Daughter's Witchcraft, podcast hosted by me, Lilith Amberley. If you're exploring witchcraft for something beyond the aesthetic, if some social media platforms make you cringe and say, that's not me, if you're looking to build a practice that enhances your life, then you, my friend, are in the right place. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Hey there, my friend. Welcome to a special Samhain episode of Not Your Daughter's Witchcraft. Today, I want to talk all about Samhain, and right along with that, I want to talk about death. Before I get started, I want to remind you to join me over on Substack to follow all of my work. It's lilithamberley.substack.com. Everyone can subscribe for free, or for a very small monthly fee, you can get access to all of my content, including courses, videos, and upcoming community projects like our Winter Solstice Gift Exchange and a group Book of Shadows project starting up early next year. All of that, of course, is completely voluntary, but it should be a lot of fun. Samhain is a Celtic holiday celebrated on November 1st to honor the dead, especially our ancestors. It's a time of year where the veil between the worlds, that's this world and the world of spirits, is thinner, allowing us to have easier communication with the dead. For those who follow an agricultural wheel of the year, it marks the last harvest festival and the beginning of the dark time of year. It's a reminder of the natural cycle of life and all that is in it. Its energy is similar to that of a dark moon, but on a larger scale. The moon's dark energy happens once a month, and I think of the time of Samhain similarly to the days leading up to the dark moon, except this time of year it's weeks leading up to the darkest point of the year, the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere. It's often thought of as the witch's new year, marking the beginning of descent into darkness before rebirth. This is the time of year that I will do a Wheel of the Year tarot reading for myself, pulling a card for each of the Sabbaths. And it's a time of year that I pay special reverence and honor to my ancestors. Now, before I get to the dead, first I want to talk for a few minutes about dying. Dying is such a taboo subject with so many people, especially in this American westernized culture that I live in. Dying has become this thing that is distant, it's cold, it's sterile, it isn't greeted with warmth, it's often greeted with fear and regret. Dying a good death is easier when we've lived a good life. Even when we've lived a good life, we just don't do death very well. Let me emphasize that when I'm talking about dying here in this segment, I'm talking about dying through the natural course of life as we age, not dying a violent or unexpected death. In those cases, we don't have the luxury of helping someone die a good death. But when we can, when we do have that luxury, what do we do? Do we help our loved ones through the process? Do we accept it with them? Or do we fight it? We know how far medicine has advanced in this last century. But with every advancement, there's always a downside. I'm going to reference a few books today, and I'll include the titles and authors in the show notes. The first book I want to note is Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Dr. Gawande is a surgeon, a writer, and a known leader in the public health arena. In his book Being Mortal, he talks about his own experiences in patient care and end-of-life issues. The experiences he shares will really make you think about what kind of end of life you want and what kind of end of life you can help ensure your loved ones experience. There was a time when our loved ones died at home. 
you know, we had practices and rituals in place for passing them to help them pass from this side to the other. So many people today die in hospitals. They're separated from those that they love and they're in environments that they would never want to be in. I wish we prepared for death the way we plan for birth. I'm so thankful that we do have palliative care specialists who focus on comfort and quality of life rather than cure. And I'm thankful for hospice services that do allow families to care for their dying loved ones at home with the support they need to properly care for their needs. And I am so happy to start seeing more and more people interested in death doulas. A death doula, similar to a birth doula, helps the dying person and their family prepare for the experience of death. They help them to make plans for it. You know, where do they want to be? What music might help comfort them? Who do they want with them? These are things that are so important, but they're often forgotten. So as we take this time of year to consider mortality, including our own, I urge you to make appropriate arrangements for your own wishes for when the time comes. Do you have a living will? Who will make decisions for you should you become incapacitated? Does that person or persons clearly know what you want and what you don't? While these are really difficult conversations to have, please trust me when I tell you that your family would rather know your wishes now than trying to guess at what they are when they are put in that situation and emotions are running really high. Now let's consider for a moment what happens after death. In the past few decades, we've moved from a culture where our dead were buried locally and we were able to visit the gravesite regularly to a culture that is much more transient. Many of us don't have direct physical access to their loved ones. Grieving is sometimes an afterthought, which isn't good for the living or the dead. Take a minute and think about how you interact with your dead. How does this compare to say how your grandparents or say your great grandparents interacted with their dead? The next book I want to mention today was written by Caitlin Dowdy and titled From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. This is probably one of the most interesting books I've read about how different cultures honor and interact with their dead. It's actually probably one of the most interesting books that I've read, period. According to the inside flap of the book, the author is a mortician who is fascinated by our pervasive fear of dead bodies. So they set out on a journey to explore how other cultures interact with their dead. One of the most fascinating practices they found was in Indonesia, on a remote Indonesian island in the area of Taraja. Death is not just the end for them. This is the next part of the journey, and it is a really intimate experience for both the living and the dead. In this culture, the people continue to converse with, commune with, and care for their dead almost as if they were alive. Their dead are kept at home with their loved ones until they can have a proper funeral, which may not seem that exceptional, except that in some cases, this could be for years. Funeral rites in Taraja are a huge affair and extremely expensive. I've read approximately $50,000, that's US dollars on the low end, and keep in mind that a typical Indonesian person may only make around $12,000. So people save their entire lives for their funeral. And if they don't have enough when they die, it's then their family's responsibility to continue saving until all costs are covered. So after the funeral, it gets even more interesting in this culture because these people bring their dead back out every three years to care for and clean them. And this ritual is called manene. Here's a passage from Dowdy's book. Down the hill from us, another family had laid out a picnic, complete with a gingham blanket, for their grandfather, who had died seven years earlier. 
This was his second appearance at a manene ceremony, and he was still in good shape, preservation-wise. His family brushed his face with a grass broom, they stood him up for a portrait, and the family gathered round, some stoic, some smiling. If you're interested in learning and seeing more of this ritual, a quick YouTube search will give you plenty of material. I was a little unsure of watching at first because I did not want to be disrespectful in any way, but the more I researched this, the more I found that the local people of this culture do record and share these rituals in the world of social media. Now, while that certainly does seem extreme when you look at the culture in Taraja and then compare it to the relationship with death that many of us share, I think they may have it more right than wrong, but that is just my opinion. For me, I take extra time during the Samhain season to honor my ancestors, beginning with an ancestor altar and ending with an ancestor feast around November 1st. Everyone in my immediate family participates, including the kids. We begin by creating our altar, and this consists of photos of loved ones who have passed, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, pets, just about everyone we can think of who were part of our lives and have passed on. If we don't have pictures, we write their name down on a piece of paper. We decorate our altar with flowers, pumpkins, and other seasonal decorations. You might want to include herbs like rosemary, you know, the herb of remembrance or apples, which are symbolic of the other world and considered the fruit of the dead. Think about hanging elder and maybe some juniper and wormwood near your doorways and windows. And this is said to protect your beloved dead while they come and go, and will provide protection for you as well from unwanted spirits. I've included ivy on my altar in the past, as it's known to help us navigate between the worlds. Carve and illuminate not only pumpkins, but rutabagas and turnips to frighten away enemies and honor the ancestors. Consider adding a pinch of tobacco to your incense, which is said to facilitate contact with the spirits. And there are so many others. The Sacred Herbs of Samhain by Ellen Everett Hopman is a fantastic source. In that book, they go through so many of the herbs and they go through the folklore and how it helps, you know, whether it's to communicate with the dead, provide protection, etc., as well as give recipes for both eating and medicinal use of some of the herbs. Now, our ancestor feast follows the same flow as a dumb supper. I just don't like the term dumb supper, so I call it our ancestor feast. I prepare the food as I would for any other dinner, and I don't have specific foods that I make. I sometimes seem to have like, you know, these grand plans, but it doesn't always work out that way. I do my best. You might want to consider ethnic foods if this is important in your family, but sometimes that will pose its own challenges, you know, between marriages and blended families and, you know, people coming from many different backgrounds. So make what works for you. The important parts of this ceremony for me are setting an empty place for the departed and honoring them by eating in silence. Once the food is ready, I will dim or out in the electric lights and light the table and the room by candlelight. Everyone sits down and I welcome the deceased by name and I invite them to join us. Once I've said the greeting, everyone then sits in complete silence. The food is served and I start with the ancestors first, you know, just putting a small portion at the empty place setting. I also pour drinks that many of our loved ones would have enjoyed. In our house, that's primarily beer, wine, water, and whiskey. We maintain complete silence until the meal is finished. On some years, this has been a really moving experience and it definitely affects each person 
differently. My youngest daughter has always been more sensitive to the other world than the rest of us. She told me that her favorite part was the music chimes that I had playing softly in the background, except I didn't have anything playing in the background and none of the rest of us heard this. Once everyone finishes, I stand up and I thank our deceased loved ones for joining us, but I do not dismiss them. You might read or some people might instruct you to direct the spirits to take leave so that way you can close that door or that portal. And that just doesn't sit right with me. You know, these are our loved ones. We've invited them to dine with us. I wouldn't just get up after any other dinner party and tell my guests to leave. So I invite them to stay as long as they'd like. I take the food from their plate and I put it outside for the night. I've had some nights where I'm sure some animal found the food and cleaned the plate and then other times that the food is still there in the morning. And if that's the case, then I just discard it at that point. Later that night, after my family has turned in, I will often sit in the dark and the silence and just listen. You'll be surprised with some of the things you might hear. So how might you call to the dead to assist you in your magic? Now, let me be clear. I am not doing spell work or asking the dead to assist me in my magic on Samhain. That is a special time that is for them. It's a time to honor them. It's not a time for me to ask for their help necessarily. But I do call upon the dead to assist me in my in my magic. And the easiest way for me is just being in right relationship with them, providing frequent offerings. You know, and these don't need to be elaborate. For me, most often it's lighting incense each morning for them. And then when I do need assistance, I ask them. And oftentimes I know that they come through for me. So that's a simple starting point. And it doesn't require elaborate spells, rituals, tools, or anything else. Now you can go really deep in this area. And if this is something that interests you, I highly recommend the last book that I'm going to talk about today. And it's called The Bones Fall in a Spiral, a Necromantic Primer by Mortellus. This book was just published this year and it is one that you definitely want in your collection if your witchcraft involves working with the dead. Like this is the real deal, my friend. So let's talk about the word necromancy for a minute because that word can even make some witches shudder. But what is it? Simply, it's communicating with the dead by summoning their spirits to divine the future. And it's been around a long, long time. One of my favorite magical books, okay, so I guess this is the last one I'm referencing, is the Bible. And one of the early stories described King Saul going to the Witch of Endor, a known necromancer. So even though Saul had banished all the conjurers and such people from Israel, when push came to shove and he was concerned about the outcome of Israel's battles with Philistine, he turned to the sorceress to summon the spirit of the prophet Samuel to learn what the outcome would be. So why is this so frowned upon? Is it because it invokes fear? Is it because we don't have a good relationship with death? You know, when done respectfully with spirits, especially in the beginning spirits that we're in relationship with, the better question might be, why not ask for their assistance? So let's talk a little bit more about this book, The Bones Fall in a Spiral, and why I highly recommend it. This book was clearly written by someone who practices what they write about. If you are new to your practice, this isn't the book you start with. But if you've been practicing your craft for some time and you're looking to go to that deeper level, then this book might be for you. I will throw out a disclaimer and say if you are of the faint of heart when it comes to death, rituals involving the dead, graveyards, and other such things, then skip this one. 
but if you are really serious about this kind of practice, you owe it to yourself to be as versed in the practice as you can be. And Mortellus provides a really well-rounded approach from everything from ethics to explaining the soul's journey and questions like when is it okay to work with the dead to ritual tools for use in your practice and then some actual spells and rituals. One of those questions, when to work with the dead, is definitely worth paying special attention to because we need to give the recently departed the respect of time and space. They are on the next stage of their journey and they don't need us calling them back for help. Grief and mourning is important, but that's very different than calling on them to help you right now. Give it time, you know, and let me share a very personal experience about giving them time. Like many people, or like most people, I should say, I experienced several losses as a child and a teenager. You know, grandparents, great-grandparents, friends. For me, I was not able to communicate with most of those people until about a year or so ago. Now that's 30 plus and in some cases 40 plus years. Now, is that because I wasn't in tune with them or were they busy? I don't know, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, don't get discouraged. These things often take time. Working with the dead can be an incredibly special experience. And sometimes it happens when we least expect it. If you have questions related to this work, or you want to share your own experiences and Samhain rituals, join me over on Substack and feel free to comment on this podcast post. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And again, join me over on my Substack site. It's lilithamberly.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or upgrade for a few dollars a month for access to all my content and to join in on the community conversations and projects. Until next time, have a very blessed Samhain.